Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number 256. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And Jackie is joining us via Skype this week. Yeah, this is kind of odd to be on the other side of it. Yeah, it is. You are effectively a guest on your own show this week because I am down here in Florida. You are back up in New York. Yeah. We tried our best listeners to get this episode done before I had to leave, but uh, there were some circumstances beyond our control. So we had started to watch the movie. We had started to prep for the episode, but I ended up packing up my notebook and we installed Disney Plus on my parents' TV at home. So I got to do my notes up here and this was the only way to get the recording out. So we apologize. Hopefully it still sounds okay, even though I'm coming in via Skype. But most important thing is we were not missing out on an episode. No, especially, especially one that we were looking forward to discussing. Yes, we were really excited to talk about this one because this is one of those titles that when you see it on Disney Plus, you get really excited for it because it's either a decom treasure or a decom disaster, right? Um, and we are talking about the Phantom of the Megaplex. I'm so excited to talk about this. I have a bone to pick with every single person who never told me that Mickey Rooney was in a decom. Yeah, um, it's a surprise. I was shocked. It's surprise casting. It's like when you find out that Debbie Reynolds is in Halloween Town. Well, once I remembered that, I was kind of like, okay, this makes sense that they got another big name. They got another legendary actor to come out and do this film. And it's a role that they can probably knock out in a couple of days because he doesn't have a ton of screen time. I think he actually has more than Debbie Reynolds did in Halloween Town. Um, but I feel like this was something that they could have gotten him for three, four days, wrapped him, and you know now you've got Mickey Rooney in your film. It's amazing. It is. Before we get into our conversation on the film, though, we do want to touch on a really awesome email that we received uh, earlier this week. This was so cool. It was such a surprise. And... Um, this was another decom that we really enjoyed discussing. Um, so it was really nice to have this follow-up. It was. And it's just proof that you never know who's listening. Seriously. Uh, we got an email. The, the subject line was, Mom's got a date with a vampire music. And this is an email from Mr. James Henry. So James Henry was in the band The Royal Crowns. They wrote some of the music that was used in Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Because we talked about in that movie, we find out that she's been in a rockabilly band. And they don't really give any real backstory to it. It's just that she's in a rockabilly band, and she ends up on her date at the rockabilly club. And we said, you know, it's such an interesting style of music that they would have chosen to... Uh, introduced into the film, but as I said to you at the time, when that movie came out, Cherry Pop and Daddies, Brian Setzer Band, like that rockabilly blues kind of swing music was really big. Right. Um, admittedly, I, I do remember talking about that. I do remember that we were interested in why 
they did select that style, even though once we started talking through it, we figured out that that's what was popular. You know, and we really like that scene for Caroline Ray to have her showcase and, you know, you fall in love with the character. And I believe we even said at the end of the book, well, we did, because admittedly, I went back to listen to this episode because once we got this email, I was like, oh, my God, please let this be a decom that I did not rip to shreds. I hope I was kind to it. And we were. We actually really liked it. Um, You know, it is one that I've not revisited since, but I've wanted to. Um... And there's no reason that we've not rewatched it because we did really, really like it. But anyway, I, I re-listened to our review of it. And um, we did say at the end that really this is a movie about uh, the mom. It's not about the kids. It, set, it sets you up to believe that it is focused on the kids and, and what happens when, you know, this potential stepfather vampire comes in their life. And then you realize, oh, no, this is about her sort of, you know, Stella getting her groove back a little bit. Right. Um, so anyway, I won't keep rambling if you want to, to read the email, but highly suggest going and checking out the film if you've not already. Right. Well, he confirmed that because that style of music was so uh, big at the time, that that played into the decision to include that style of music in the film. And originally... They were going to come in because they were very popular in Toronto. They were a a favorite of the associate producer of the film. So they were going to come in and do a couple of cover songs. But when the director of the film heard their record, he decided he wanted their originals in there. And the song maybe that they perform in the film with Caroline Ray uh, on stage with them, that was, a, that was a personal favorite of the director. And that's why... Um, it was included in the film. And he said she was nervous, but like a total pro. Um, they did use a session singer in the, in the film. Um, but he said that she was great. And it was a day of, a day of filming. And he said it's, he, he thinks his daughter is really, she, she thinks it's cool that her dad was in a Disney movie. That's so awesome. I, I love the time that he took the time to write in. Um, I love that we got some behind the scenes information straight from the source. To me, that's just the coolest thing because especially with the DCOMs, we always try to do our homework and find the behind the scenes information. But with the DCOMs, it's really difficult. Like I didn't find anything on this film that we're about to discuss. So, you know, it's just so cool that someone who took part in the making of it and had, you know, a pretty big, role in it um i mean not not as far as a character goes but like a role in such a pivotal scene that we got to hear it straight from them yeah that was awesome and it like i said just goes to show that you never know exactly who is listening but it's fun to get emails like that so thank you very much for taking the time to send us an email um all right let's get into our conversation about the phantom of the megaplex was this film worth the wait are we going to stack it up and put it in the same class as a uh, as a mom's got a date with a vampire? Or is it falling into the category of, say, a high school musical, too? That, on top of many other things, is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by Fierce Fox Co., designers of handmade silkscreen shirts. Fierce Fox has a t-shirt, tank top, hoodie, or crew neck for every fandom. So whether it's the movies or theme parks, princesses or villains, the MCU or Star Wars, everyone will find something they love. 
The designs range from subtle quotes from our favorite films to iconic characters we can wear proudly in so many different styles, such as sketchbook and concert tees. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 20% discount using the code MONOREAL at checkout. Visit FierceFoxDesignCo.com to check out all of the collections. We meet Pete Riley, a 17-year-old assistant manager at the Megaplex. Rumor has it that the theater is haunted by a ghost of a faithful moviegoer who is trapped inside the original theater's implosion. Midnight Mayhem will be hosting their world premiere, so emotions are running high as the staff prepares for the event. Mason, whose family operated the original theater in 1925, doesn't work at the theater, but he believes that he does. We learn that the theater's new owner, Wolfgang Niedermeyer, will be present for the event and expects the highest of standards. Pete's mom asks him to bring his siblings, Karen and Brian, to the movies that day and to bring them home during his dinner break, but he is more concerned with his crush, Lisa, who has uh, gotten a ticket to the premiere uh, via Pete. That night, we learn that half the staff has called out, leaving them understaffed and without their work breaks. Karen, meanwhile, schemes with her friends to dump Brian off at a kid's movie while she and her friends go see a horror film that her mother does not want her to see. Movie Mason, meanwhile, has been kicked out of the theater as he is now an insurance liability. As odd things start happening around the theater, many believe that the Phantom of the Megaplex is to blame. Karen leaves Brian, who promises to stay in his seat no matter what. However, he does not keep his promise, so when she decides to go check on him and she sees that he's gone, she assumes that he went to the restroom and decides to sit and wait for his return. We see, however, that he is in the projector room with a furious Pete who learns that Sean, their manager, has disappeared. As things continue to go wrong, moviegoers grow more and more frustrated. Brian tells the staff, that this is the work of the Phantom, but nobody believes him. Pete finds Sean tied up in the basement, but he does not have a great description of who tied him up. Within an hour of the premiere, the chaos at the Megaplex gets worse. Pete calls his mom, who tells her boyfriend George that they will need to cut their date short to pick Brian and Karen up since Pete won't have his break, but naturally, George's car now will not start. Sean believes Mason is the Phantom as revenge, so the staff sets out to find him. Brian and Karen find him in his hideout, and he tells them that he isn't the Phantom as ruining a moviegoer's experience is too big a sin. After investigating, they tell Pete that they believe that it is Merle who works in the projection room that is the Phantom. Um, because he is the only person that could sabotage the lights and the projectors. Merle, however, tells them that he isn't the Phantom as he isn't controlling anything that is happening. We then see the Phantom sabotaging an auditorium, so they head down to stop him, but he escapes. Niedermeyer arrives with the Hollywood A-listers and is assured that everything is under control. However, chaos continues to ensue. The Phantom eventually captures and ties up Pete and his siblings. They manage to escape. However, an inflatable dinosaur brought in to promote the Hollywood premiere has come to life and is now attacking guests in the auditorium. Pete pulling the sword from the stone, which is a little display in the lobby, is able to deflate the balloon. And as he battles the, uh, battles the phantom, we learn that Sean was the phantom. And he did it because he was upset that he was passed over as the new general manager of the theater, and he did it to finally be noticed. George proposes to... Uh, their mother in the movie theater to give them the big A-list Hollywood ending while the director of Midnight Mayhem pitches the idea of turning Sean's life story into a film. 
Niedermeyer offers Pete a promotion. However, he rejects the job offer so that he can slow down and enjoy his time with Lisa, which is what his mother had wanted him to do the whole time because he was overworked. Okay. So. Off the rip. I love the intro voiceover by Pete because they give us a lot of exposition, but it doesn't seem rushed. It gets us up to date with where we are in the story right away. And I think it does a good job of introing not just him and his family, but the other staff members who work in the movie theater. Like, within three minutes, we know exactly where we are, we know exactly who these people are, and we are ready to jump into the action. I'm going to slightly disagree with you there. Um, For the most part, I absolutely love the intro. Um... And the setup here. I love that it introduces us to the town history. Uh, I love that they knocked the old theater down. Now there's one in its place. Uh, And I think they are very much planting the seed now that we don't know if it's a supernatural entity that's going to be the phantom or if this is going to be more of a whodunit. And I think that's why they chose to introduce every single one of the characters the way that they did. Um... Once it gets to that point, I feel like it does start to drag a bit. Um, But it really wasn't until we started talking it through now when I realized, well, they are sort of setting up the whodunit. It makes sense. It's more forgivable now that I'm talking through it. But it did just feel a little long because you're introducing a bunch of characters that never fully develop. Some of them do because they do have more interactions with Pete and they do have a bigger role later on, but they go through like every single staff member. And I don't know that we needed to hit on quite that many people when some of them barely have any speaking lines. Um, And the other thing that kind of gets lost is that we never find out why Pete likes his job so much and why he is working so hard and why he wants to take on all of this responsibility at such a young age. They do sort of dip their toe in the water with it at a few points later on, which we'll talk about. But I feel like we should have got that information now. Um, The other thing I really liked about this intro, it almost felt like um, a clerk setup. Like, it reminded me very much of, I mean, even though the opening of Clerks is just Dante getting called into work and him setting up the convenience store, um, the way that it puts us in this, um, I don't want to say retail setting, but because they are so focused on the workplace, um, I really liked that parallel, whether it was intentional or not. Yeah, I think that was very well done. Um, I will agree with you that most of those characters that get introduced at the beginning of the film, meaning the other staff, outside of Sean and Mason, none of them really make a difference. They're kind of just there for the chaos. They're tripping over themselves. They're there to be the butt of the joke. But I think that it sort of made sense to put them in there and to give us some context as to who they are, simply because if they didn't, they would just be other characters that are like, who is this? Why do we care? Why are they there other than being employed? They they never fully develop, but I 
I thought that it was necessary that we at least meet them. Because if we don't meet them, we don't care about them. And you do also need to create that feeling of it's busy. There's a premiere tonight. You need the hype. So it it definitely worked. I think it just could have gone a little bit quicker. Yes. As far as him narrating these characters. And I think that a point that you brought up that's very interesting is that he loves his job at the theater, but he's not necessarily the movie buff. His siblings are. Exactly. Um, that was a big point that I wanted to make. Um, because not only is he not chiming in once he gets back home. So the, the setup here is that they have their staff meeting and then the general manager dismisses everyone to take a break. And then they're going to come back to the movie theater for the premiere night, which I thought was a little odd because I'm like, are we really working these kids? This is going to be like a 17-hour day for these kids or something. So I feel like it would have been better to start off maybe the night before with the setup and be like, all right, guys, you know, like they close at night. All right, guys, big day tomorrow. You know, show up, do your best, blah, 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 blah. And then we could have gotten, th this all serves for the introduction of the Sean character. Um, who, by the way, I feel like we are going to talk about the cast later, but I feel like the casting here was sort of a miss. And I do want to bring this up now because he's, he's too young. He doesn't look much older than these kids and he's going to be responsible for all of them. So I feel like we could have set it up a little bit more where, you know, he's been at this for a long time. He feels like he deserves this promotion because he's been working here for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, and it would have given him more of a motivation to do what he did. Um, and it would have landed harder when he gets upset that he was passed over for the GM. And that's the other thing. He gets the call in the meeting, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, like, it just, it, it felt so shoehorned in as a plot point as opposed to something that could have maybe happened. Um, well, I don't know where you'd put it because, you know, that's the thing. The premiere's the next night. So how is he going to, or it's the same day, rather. I'm, I'm saying it should be the next night. But, like, if it's the same day, how is he going to pull off all of the hijinks? Well, I think what you perhaps could have done is plant the seed early that Niedermeyer never, he can never remember his last name. He always says the wrong name. And it kind of gets him going. So it should be something to the effect of, because you're right, he's in his early 20s, so he's young for the job, but realistically he probably could do the job. But it should have been the pressure is on the staff. He's putting the pressure on the staff to have a flawless premiere because his promotion hinges on it. And he is going out of his way to set up the ruse that this awful thing has happened so that it also boosts him up to prove that I can handle pressure, I can handle chaos, and this went smoothly, and I needed you to notice me. Yeah, instead of just running, running the theater the way it does on a day-to-day -day basis, it's like, okay... It's this big event, and I knocked it out of the park. Oh, this big event is falling to chaos, but I saved it all. Yeah. yeah. 
to, to set himself up for failure so that he could save the day. I'm so glad you mentioned that about the last name because here's where I realized that this was not going to be the spooky Halloween movie that we hoped and more of a whodunit. Um, Sean's last name, I'm looking at IMDb, does not spell it like you, by the way. Uh, it's McGibbon. And I was like, hmm, that sounds like MacGuffin which is a film term for a plot device. And I was like, it's him. So I, I knew within like the first two minutes of the movie, but that didn't stop me from enjoying the rest of it. So anyway, um, let's get back into the siblings. We started talking about how they're the movie buffs of the family. And not only does Pete um, not get into the quotes with them, he really dismisses their interest in movies. And... Um, he, he encourages them to focus on the real world, which I thought was a really interesting choice for this character. Yeah. Um, considering where he works and how much he loves it. Like you could have, you could have dropped him at empire records. You know what I mean? Like he could have just been anywhere, but obviously we had to have a setup here. I do think that it was a bit of a miss that he himself does not love the films or, or perhaps even the movie going experience, but you had to get us into this setting somehow Yes, I agree with you. We could have at least weaved it in like maybe he was a film lover. He passed it down to his siblings, but maybe he looks at it as as a different thing now because he's working there. For him, it's he loves his job, but he doesn't go there for fun. You know, they could have played with that idea a little bit as well. Well, they also sort of dip their toes in the water with the dad, but they never fully give us the information on what happened. The way that they talk about their father later on in the film, it leads me to believe that he's passed, not that they're separated, especially because how refreshing yes. is it to see the kids supporting their mother's relationship with George? That is that is one of my biggest notes. Yeah, rooting for a proposal, but I feel like it would have been a really nice parallel to that, that... Pete stepped up into this role because now he's the man of the house. He had to get a job to help support his family because, by the way, they still have a very nice home for a single-parent household. Uh, classic 90s, even though this is a 2000s movie, that's a classic 90s trope there, that the houses are beautiful on a single-income household. Anyway. Yeah, they but they, been... you used to be able to do that in the 90s. Yeah, well, that's true. That is true. Um. But they could have, um, even in a couple of throwaway lines, fleshed it out that Pete needed a job. His dad was really into movies, so that's why he wants to work there to feel close to his father. But he's not ready to go and, like, enjoy the movies the way that he once did because that was their thing with their dad. And I think that also would have made Mickey Rooney's character just land so much harder. Um as far as his role and, and the kids just looking up to him so much. Yeah. Um, but I think that was so refreshing to see that the kids actually want a stepdad, that they're not butting heads with the new boyfriend or with the stepdad. Um, and I thought that the back and forth that was happening between being in the house and being in the movie theater was excellent because we see what's happening at the theater. We see what Pete's going through, but then we see how the subplots of the film start to develop where Pete is concerned with impressing Lisa and getting her in front of the big Hollywood people, because that's going to score him major points. Meanwhile, Karen 
is scheming with her friends to go see this this horror film and ditch her brother at, you know, Farmer Fran or whatever it is that they're going to see. Ditch him at the kids' movie, and you start to see where the where the plot is, is going to get intertwined later on, but they do it so well. I go back and forth with that because... I can appreciate that they had to get the siblings in in a natural way and set up that, okay, I'm letting you go to the movies, but Pete's going to have to bring you home on his break tonight, which you knew he was never going to get a break. Right. Um, But I almost would have liked to live in a world where this was like panic room and we were only shooting in the one location. The entire thing takes place in real time at the theater. Um, so I also, I would have totally overlooked if we met Pete's mom and siblings, if she literally rolled up to the theater in the car and dropped them off. And then you could have, because there's not so much exposition because they don't, they don't delve into what happened with the father. All you get is this quick beat about, Hey, we're rooting for you. We hope George proposes. You could have done all of that as she, as these kids are like getting out of the car. Um, And instead, we get this kind of unmotivated line from the sister, you know, that classic, I hate my life. Like, (laughs) she starts arguing with the mother, but I don't really buy it because all of the lines are delivered with the same energy. And like, we hope you get married is delivered with the same energy as I hate my life. So it kind of just feels like, why are we putting her at odds? with her mom right now because it's not like they're not talking. It's not like she sneaks away with the brother to go to the theater. Like they're never at any point really at odds with their mom. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. I think that you needed the subplot where she's going to ditch her brother to go see the movie that her mother does not want her to see. I think that that was necessary, Mm -hmm. but you don't get the feeling that they have a strained relationship before that happens or even after that happens. Exactly. Like she's not being disobedient because that's the, she's kind of young. I don't, I I don't read this as teen angst. I don't read it as her being spiteful for the sake of being spiteful. I just read it as she loves the movie. She's going to go see the movie that she wants to see. And then once we get them to the theater, honestly, the siblings carry this thing. They are so good. Like, I know I'm knocking on her for for the delivery of the lines and the I hate my life. But once we get out of that, these kids are fantastic. Right. And I mean, she's only delivering a line that's written for her. It's not like she yeah. had some great bit of dialogue that she ruined. Right. Um, but I think, yes, the I think the movie is so incredibly well paced because I'm OK with it taking place in two separate locations. Because they move you from location A into location B so quickly. And location B is exactly where we're going to spend a majority of this film. They don't waste time getting us into the main set for the entire movie. Right. I love that throughout, too, um, the siblings' dialogue, it's always like, you know... Like in this movie, and they'll give the title and the description of what happens. And I feel like it would be a lot more relatable if the movies that they're referencing were cultural icons. But this is almost funnier in a way. 
because we don't know what the heck they're talking about. I think the trap that they would have set for themselves is if they did it that way, it would have been too much like Jamie Kennedy in Scream. Uh, yeah, I'll give you that one. But this is this film sort of is self-referential in the same way that Scream is, so I think that I would have overlooked that. I think what it comes down to is more the rights and not being able to mention some of those films because, oh, we did, we did fly over this. One of the other things that I really, really liked about the intro is that um, they're, I, I don't know if they're actually playing Phantom of the Opera, but that is Phantom of the Opera from 1925 with Lon Chaney. Um, I don't know if they would have had the budget to get the rights to actually do it. I think what they did was they reshot it. Because the other thing that's impressive is that every single film that they're watching, they're not real movies. They shot all of these to, to play on screen because you can tell that they're not real because the movies are commenting on exactly what happens. Like right. the movie that, um, that the sister is watching, uh, when, when she has to go back and check on her brother, it's like, Oh no, where did he go? And that's the dialogue that's, you know, being, being set on screen. And that's where I do compare it to scream without it being ripped off because it's being self-referential. They're doing it on purpose. They are spelling out exactly what is happening in our movie, but it's funny. I, I think honestly, a lesser director, this would have felt so cheap and so ripped off. Um, and it would have fallen so flat, but it's just executed so well that it, I thought it was really funny. The only thing I can imagine if they took the actual footage from Lon Chaney's film is it by then it had to be in public domain. Um, it was 1925 and this was 2000. So 75 years. That, that would have put it in public domain, I think. I thought it was 80 public domain. I don't know. So here's the thing. Public domain is funny because I don't know if every, I don't know if public domain's rules apply to everything or if just some of them apply to Mickey Mouse. <laughs> no, and that's very on brand for Disney, right? Like it, when it's convenient for them. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. But if anything... I feel like they could have very easily recreated the mask and, and just shot that Phantom of the Opera bit when they were shooting all of these other... Actually, you know what I, I would really like to do if I go back and watch this more closely? They might have used the same actor and actress in all of the on-screen movies and just put them in all of these different settings. That might be something that on IMDb we might be able to tell just from looking at the credits. Could be. Um, but that would be even more funny if that's, in fact, what they did. And they just reshot all of these different movies, you know, all these different styles with the same actor and actress. And it's, you know, a different film that's going to each different demographic. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Um, let's talk about now we're in the movie theater. We have Karen ditching Brian. Right. And we have movie Mason. Who is incredible. We love Movie Mason. I I am upset that this film did not come into my life earlier for this character. This I mean I I cried. You know I cried. Our listeners know I cried. Like obviously, I was going to cry with Mickey Rooney. Um 
just seeing him in this made me so emotional. But just the character that they gave him with loving movies so much. Like, I just, uh, I can't. I can't. But what they... I'm I'm really at a loss for words. What they do so well here is um, they, they take a character that we fall in love with. They have something awful happen to him when he's thrown out of the movie theater by Sean, right? But then you start to realize that this is a whodunit film, and you start to wonder, you start to wonder if this character that you've fallen in love with is actually, like, has malicious intent the entire time. Like, dropping that early, and, and not paying off on that, by the way, because they could have very easily paid off on that, and they didn't. It was so incredibly well done. Right, because they've also set up the idea of when the first, the original theater was demolished, that someone was stuck inside. And you're like, oh, was that movie Mason? Is this a ghost? So, like, they do still try and throw you off the trail. Um, and they they reinforce it because the crowd just loves him. So they really are setting up that idea of, oh, is this beloved, sweet, innocent old man really behind all of this? Um, speaking of the crowd loving him, can we talk about the impressive amount of extras in this film? So many. I was floored that those, every single movie theater seat was filled. And I mean, obviously this was not a studio build. Like they are shooting on location. Um, they're using an actual movie theater and, I'm guessing because they got a space like this, they probably didn't have a long shoot. The thing that's working in their favor is that you're shooting in a movie theater, so you can be shooting day or night, doesn't matter. It's dark, all you have to do is light it. So that's perfect, that's smart. But like, I could honestly see this being one of these movies that because a lot is taking place in the theater and you don't have to wait for daylight, they probably could have knocked out this entire shoot if they really pressed it in like 12 days and to do something like that with this amount of extras is absolutely unreal. Cause even you had experience with scenes like this because I worked on an independent film and we were shooting out on Long Island and we needed to do a theater scene. So it was like, call your friends, call your relatives, get them in there. Let's fill the theater. And we unfortunately didn't have a lot of people turn up for it. So we were trying to make a theater look full with very few people. Now, I mean, it's different when it's a Disney production that's paying all these people to be there. But to do this with like 200 people and really make it look full, it's it's no easy task. Um, so that was really impressive. And it's not just the movie theaters. It's the the lines to get in. It's the, the uh, red carpet shots outside, like... I, I mean, this is an unbelievable amount of people to be working with. The set is incredible. I absolutely love the set, and it makes me miss how movie theaters used to look. It, mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything now, like, you always see the meme of McDonald's and how sterile McDonald's looks now. You you. The same thing goes for every fast food restaurant, but also the movie theaters, right? Like, I love... I love the um, 
the the heated chairs. I love the recliners. I love the bars and the fact that you can order like actual food at the movie theater. But I do miss the bright colors. I miss the neon. Like there is so much about that that I miss. And they do such a great job of of incorporating that here. It is very much a piece of its time. What I'm hearing is that you're missing 90s kitsch. Yes. Because that neon was was very much a 90s thing. And there are still theaters that look like that. Like with um like one of our our theaters that we would frequent on Long Island, like it had the mural of all of these stars, but like it was no movies past 2000 really. Right. Um you know, Johnny Depp as Jack Sparrow was like the big feature there. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are still some that, you know, they haven't completely uh, remodeled where you can still get that kind of a vibe. And I feel like those, the theaters that still, those rare theaters that still do look like that, unfortunately, they're not going to get remodeled for quite some time because movie theaters are hurting right now. But that's also, you know, what I really loved about this movie and especially movie Mason's character is just the appreciation of it all. Yeah. I think you, you mentioned the nineties kitsch. What I love most about everything that starts to happen here is the nineties mayhem, the nineties <laughs> yeah. haywire. It's it's nineties haywire in its best in all of the ways that you want to see it. Because despite the fact that the movie came out in the year 2000, they wrote it and had it in production in the 90s, right? So it is very much a product. It's a late product of its time. But it's 90s kitsch in all of the right ways. I think that they do all in all, without breaking down every single thing that happens because there's just way too much going on, they do a great job building up to all of it because they start small Oh, gumballs all over the place, popcorns exploding all over the place, and then they build to a literal tornado in a theater that's basically showing Twister, right? Like, the, the build getting up to everything, they, they just did it all so well, so well-paced. Actually, I'm going to disagree with you there. This is where I feel like it would have served the movie well, and I honestly wouldn't have cared if this was a two-hour film and they added it in. I feel like we should have been introduced to these characters the night before the premiere while they're closing because they keep referencing the Phantom. Everybody knows it's kind of this urban legend, and they do believe in a ghost. So I feel like it would have been nice to see some of these pranks happening the night before because this is all... Sean now so we are sort of getting that confirmation that it's not really a ghost and I wish that they had played with the idea of the ghost a little bit more because then they do keep planting it like you see the phantom's eyes in the cards cardboard cutout that they have yep so they keep referencing the phantom but they never pay off because we do get someone of flesh and blood who's pulling off all these hijinks except for the gumballs that actually that was the bully Right. Just being a jerk. But I love how Pete cleans it up with a hockey stick. Yeah. I thought that that was really fun. Where a hockey stick comes from, we don't know, but we're not going to question it either. Yeah. Yeah. That I I would totally chalk up to 90s kitsch. Like, sure, of course you have one. Um, Well, I I mean, and I'll buy it too because they did have, um, you know, they take us into the basement where there's all those props. 
I buy that it's something you have lying around. If it had been something that was branded to Mighty Ducks, that would have been spectacular. Ugh. Stop. Hitting on all of my... All of my 90s loves here. Um, here's the only thing I bump on a little bit, is that, you know, they say that Mason is always around. And I do love this idea that he loves the movie so much that... Um, He'll be there whether he's paid to be or not. But to me, it's like he's this sweet old man. Like, can't you make him a ticket taker or something? Like, why are you throwing out his schedule? Especially because you don't have him on the payroll, but you have this cinema sitter. Why? Because right. we needed a funny grandma character to do what exactly? And and by the way, nobody cares how long your brother's been in the bathroom for. No. No. They, and they don't pay off. Like, if, if she was the Phantom, like, if that's how the Phantom was personified, then I'd be like, okay. But, like, we don't see her when the pranks really start to go off the rails. She doesn't really have anything to do with the premiere. We don't get, like, confirmation at the end that, like, she made out, she made it out of this fine. She, she has no reason to be there except to give the... Um, Really for that one scene with the bathroom and just to have like that to, to I guess they wanted one of those classic 90s scenes of the kids are sneaking around and having to be quiet and, you know, just that presence of, oh, no, are they going to get busted? But they do nothing with her. No, but as we've pointed out, the mystery, the whodunit feel, because you don't know if it's a... You don't know if it's supernatural or if it's a real person. That mystery is brilliant and it starts to build and it starts to build. And to me, where it really starts to take off, what I think is not only the best scene in the movie, I think this is one of the best scenes and some of the best dialogue in any Disney film, period. We're chasing the kids around... We're chasing the Phantom around. Brian and Karen now are off trying to find the Phantom. And they, they figured out that the film titles correspond yes. to the next prank. Right. And they find Movie Mason's hideout. Which is interesting that Movie Mason has a hideout. That no one knows is there. But, but I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll buy it from him. Everything there is Phantom 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 so of course we're gonna think it's him and when he kind of appears out of the shadows like it's almost scary at first in spite of the fact that it's mickey rooney but he delivers that true wonder dialogue the true wonder of the movies and movie magic that's some of the best dialogue in any disney film of all time balling absolutely Balling. And what really twisted the knife, you know, is if I'm I'm not already emotional while he's delivering this speech, uh, he says there's no place like home. And him and Judy Garland did a ton of movies together. Um, they were best friends. I really do. I think. Wait, did they date or was that like a Hollywood rumor? I think anyway. that was just a rumor. Yeah. Um no, I don't think that they, it was ever confirmed. I think I think people wanted to ship them, but 
never really happened. Uh, and you wonder how different her life might have turned out because of that. But anyway, um, that was absolutely intentional that they gave him the there's no place like Homeline. Um, yeah, I, I love this set. I love the scene. Um, even building up to it, once the kids do figure out that the Phantom's tricks are corresponding to movie titles, um, they're trying to get ahead of him. And then we do learn that they do feel connected to the movies because of their dad. And their dad took them, and that's why they still want to go, and they just want to be there and experience a film in the theaters. That's why they, they went out of their way to... Um, not sneak around because there was they were supposed to be at the one movie, but you know this is just such a part of who they are and their personality. So not only do you calm their fears when movie Mason confirms that he's not the Phantom, just to give them someone that they can relate to on that level because they don't have their dad the way they build to this moment and pay it off is just absolutely incredible. But yeah, I just was, was in tears. It's, it's one of my favorite Disney monologues ever. And I mean, they knew what they were doing, the way the camera's just slowly pushing into Mickey Rooney's face. It was just so beautiful. And I, I'm wondering if they let him improv it a little bit because it's just so from the heart. It's so disappointing to see I mean, we're out of the writer's strike now, but as of the time of this recording, the actors are still on strike. Um, and I don't feel as bad for the actors, by the way, as I did for the writers. Let's just put that out there. Um, at least not the big A-listers. You know, for the extras... Not the A-listers, but the, yeah, the background and the working class actors, like, they're hurting just as much as the writers. Right. Those are the people that I'm feeling bad about. But anyway, with all of that being said, um, they... Uh, to see the state of Hollywood now is so disappointing, especially because these these studios, Disney and Warner and Paramount, they're all of them. They're all in the same boat. They don't if it's not a franchise that they can sell a bunch of toys to, they don't care. And they're doing everything as cheaply as possible. You know, we're not getting great set builds. We're not getting great makeup. Everything is just CGI, CGI, CGI. And it's bad CGI. We've talked about it for so long. Um, it's so disappointing to hear that the same companies that 23 years ago at the time of this recording had such an appreciation for that style of filmmaking, they've now thrown it out the window for the almighty dollar. Yeah. I, I think that's also part of the reason that I was so emotional and that I, I was crying so much during that scene because it is that reminder of why you go to the movies and why I fell in love with them in the first place. And you kind of spoiled my final review, Sean, that it's like, this is the movie and, and that was the scene that I needed right now because I've been so brokenhearted over the state of this industry. And, and even before the strikes, I was getting very jaded with a lot of things for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned, because this was all bound to happen. It's been building for so long. Um, but I totally needed that refresher from the movie fans point of view and, and why, you know, you do go to seek out these emotions and that movie magic in the first place. 
let's talk about this film and some of the movie magic here and some of the things that I really like and that they did really well. Um, as the A-listers start to arrive and Niedermeyer the comes... The name of the actress. <laughs> that, that three name, Ashley, Mary, whatever it was. So funny. Yeah. Rachel Lee Cook. Jennifer Love yeah. Hewitt. All of them in the 90s, right? Exactly. So... We so yes the the water balloons because they have balloons that they are going to release that say midnight mayhem all over them. Um, yeah. They've been up there. They're now water balloons, and they fall on the they fall on Niedermeyer. They fall on the director. They start falling on the A listers. Not not our leading lady. She hasn't arrived just yet. I absolutely love that they turned into water balloons. And from the minute we get there, here we go. It is in fact midnight mayhem. It was fun. Um, I mean, this is such like a classic Nickelodeon kind of a scene. Um, even though this was 2000s, like that's something I would fully expect to have seen on Nickelodeon or on Disney Channel in the 90s. Um, and I feel like that's the type of humor that they were trying to get in here. And at the same time, it doesn't feel forced. The only thing that I bump on though is what we are cutting back and forth to, uh, well, there's like three elements now because now you've just got so many people involved, but they balance it out really well because you're yeah. cutting it to mom and George who are, they know that Pete can't drive the kids home. They're trying to get to the theater. George's car breaks down. So now they really are playing with this idea of a supernatural phantom again because now you've taken the parents out of the equation. You've got... Um, Pete's siblings that are still running around trying to figure this out. But what I don't love is that they page the mother that she needs to come and pick them up. And in a movie with pagers, I don't love that to the internet was the solution to figure out what the plot of Midnight Mayhem is because uh, Brian knows that there's got to be some sort of spoiler on the internet for people who have seen this film already, so he's trying to figure out what the next phantom trick is going to be. I like the idea that they're going so far and going through such great lengths to get ahead of it, but I feel like... I, I don't know. I, I feel like the internet wasn't going to be top of mind because it wasn't so... Well, no, I guess it was getting to be that prominent. But you know what it is? Looking at it now in the age of the phones where you can grab your phone out and look up anything, this probably felt like a bigger deal at the time because you had to go, oh, no, we have to find a computer. We have to hook it up. We have, the, we have to dial in on a modem. It probably felt like a lot more of a process right? and a bigger conflict than it's playing now. Yeah. Um. So I, I guess that's uh, I can be a lot more concise about it. it. That's where it feels a little dated. It does, but I'm willing to overlook all of that. And and certain elements of yeah. this are going to be dated because the movie's 23 years old. And when you think about technology specifically, you know, the only people in this film with cell phones are adults. None of the kids have them, so they still have a bank of pay phones in the lobby of the movie theater. Kids now are not going to understand that. At the time, that was very much the way that it was. But you can forgive all of this for Mickey Rooney's Hooray for Hollywood 
They Ugh. allow him his red carpet moment. And I love the payoff that the leading lady knows Movie Mason because that was... Now, here's the thing. That was her hometown. She's such an A-lister. You'd think that everybody would have known that. It w- this should right. not be the first time that we've heard it. But I love the fact that she has an ongoing relationship with Movie Mason and... He remembers her loving film so much as a child and coming to his family's theater that she then pursued it as a career. All of that makes sense. It's just a miss that you're leading... Or or just say like, hey, the reason why we got the premiere is because our leading lady is from this town and she wants the premiere here. Like, you could have tied it in because everybody seems shocked to hear that she's from the town. Exactly. Because they do mention in the beginning, the reason they set up this premiere is that Sean had connections right. to the director because they shot not they shot the film not too far from where the theater is. I wish we would have gotten a little context about where this town is, because it feels like it's Hollywood adjacent, but they're also still trying to give it that small town feel of oh, this is a big deal because we got this premiere here. We got the stars to come out. So, like, I feel like a little bit of context would have gone a long way. I mean, this could be one of those decoms that was shot in Canada. This could be outside of Toronto, but Toronto is... uh, And and Vancouver, those uh, towns or cities are very big. They're like Hollywood North. A lot of films shoot up there. So if it was a smaller town outside, I'll buy it. But what they're playing here sort of it it sounds like what they were going for is that this is a small town outside of LA and it's like this is normal for LA right so I feel like if we would have just gotten some sort of confirmation that this is a small town kind of in the middle of nowhere it would have it would have gone a lot farther uh but I love this moment for movie Mason even though it doesn't really make sense that he and this crowd are right outside of the door where the water balloons just fell. And you've got this Hollywood actress publicist demanding, we need to get in the theater for our premiere. How did this angry mob of the crew get past this big crowd outside? And the other thing is that they're leaning into this Hollywood stereotype of this is our premiere night roll out the red carpet for us and yada, yada, yada. So wouldn't you all be out on the red carpet that they have set up, soaking up your moment and posing for pictures instead of beating down the door to get in? Yeah. That was a miss. I'll agree with you there. The other thing I feel like they missed, and this sort of goes back to what we were talking about before, they're, they're starting to accuse people who they think are the Phantom. And one of those is Merle. Um, I feel like what would have been really cool, and it would have given Merle his moment, uh, sort of in the same way that Mason is relieved of being accused of being the Phantom, um, instead of going to the internet, what they could have done was run up to Merle and been like, hey, we need the film reel. We need to see what right. happens and like go through actual, especially because they bothered to take you up into the production room. They have so many amazing shots through the film reels. Right. It would have been so cool to just keep it in that world of 
not touching the technology and and because these kids love the film so much to see them like get their hands on it um i feel like that would have been a lot more effective um than the internet and then you also wouldn't have had to like accuse merle because then i feel like they're just you know pointing fingers at everybody at this point just for the sake of i mean it works because it still does feed that chaotic feeling but like they've done that enough with the angry mob yeah, I agree with you there. And I, I wish that the capture of Pete and Karen and Brian would have paid off a little bit more. Oh. You know, we're up on the roof because, because, because. Um, the Phantom... I... Sorry, go ahead. The Phantom just jumps on them with a big sack and then wraps a rope around them and goes, and runs away. That's that's <laughs> the whole That's the whole thing. And within five minutes of this, they're able to shimmy over to a pipe and catch the rope yeah and get out of it no i completely agree with you there this is probably the worst capture and escape of all time it doesn't bother me that it's on the roof because we've been down to the basement also you're dealing with shooting in one space or in one setting you you have to utilize that space as much as you can so it doesn't feel stale so like i appreciate that you know, we've we've done the theaters, we've done the projection room, we've done the concession stand. I totally buy that they made it up to the roof. I just don't love... I, I feel like they could have gotten out of this so easily, especially because Brian is small. Brian could shimmy on out of there and unti- untie the other two. We didn't need to lasso the... What even was that? Was it Was it plumbing? Was it gas? Like, what did they... What knob were they pulling out I, there? I would assume that that's probably like the sprinkler system. Now, see, that would have been funny, especially because they do have another theater where the audience got wet. So, and, and that comes earlier, but how funny would that be if the kids actually tripped, tripped their own prank in this one? Right. Um... But they escape, and that gets us into the auditorium where now the inflatable dinosaur that was used to promote the movie is now attacking the guests. Um, I love that the inflatable dinosaur is attacking the guests. My only problem with this and with the water balloons is that when you see this happening, all of the balloons have now turned to water balloons, hundreds of them. Tied to the ceiling. A human being certainly couldn't do all of that without being unnoticed. A, an inflatable dinosaur coming to life and attacking people, a human being could not possibly control that. So you would be led to believe that there is something supernatural afoot. When it pays, when we see that it's Sean, how is someone of flesh and blood, how did he change all of those balloons without being noticed? How did he get. Uh, a, uh, an inflatable dinosaur to attack people without being noticed. Um, if you were going to go with someone of flesh and blood, that's fine. And I like Sean's motivation for doing all of it, but I wish that there would have been an actual phantom that perhaps he was working with to do all of this. So the balloons check out because those were done in the setup in the beginning of the film and he sends everybody home and comes back. So he could have, he had time That's a to good catch. That. That's a good catch. I will, I will give them that. Um, the inflatable dinosaur, though, I feel like everyone 
would have noticed that when they came back because that was blown up at the very beginning of the film. Um, you could make the argument that there's so much other chaos, nobody was really looking. And in the time that Sean disappeared, you know, before he tied himself to the basement rail, he could have done it. Um, Sean had the time to do it. It's just the unnoticed part. The balloons check out, the dinosaur does not. Admittedly, the first time we watched this, I really didn't love the inflatable being in the theater. But on the second time, the way that they use the other two inflatables to block out all of the exits. Yeah. I was like, that's actually pretty genius. Because in my mind, I'm like, this is a room full of adults now. You know, it's a st- it's well established that Pete is 17. I said that Sean looks too young for this job. So it feels like it's all kids, except for the cinema sitter, who where is she by now? So to me, I was kind of like, you've got a room full of adults. Like, why is nobody stepping up to handle this? The way that they locked them in, and the way that you've got a bunch of these Hollywood types who are used to just having things done for them, I'll totally buy they don't have the answer. And they're just sort of sitting there taking it. Nobody's, you know, like, where is my handler to do this for me? Um, so I thought that that really worked. And then the sight gag on that they use on the big screen where it's projected and everyone is watching this fight with the phantom behind the screen, uh, brilliant. Brilliant use of the setting. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love the whole sword in the stone thing where he pulls the sword from the stone, but all they have to do is like shut the magnet off and he gets it out because he's sitting there yanking on it and saying, it's going to take me 10,000 pulls, you know? Um, I love that. I love the the callback to old, you know, classic Disney with the sword in the stone. Um, and you're right. I, I like that they're watching all of this happen from behind the screen. Um, and I thought that when Sean gets exposed as the Phantom, I thought it was a pretty good twist. Because it's totally motivated as to why he would do this. But you don't think that it's him because who could have possibly captured and tied themselves up to be found? But that was the brilliance of him doing that. Is he is now the least suspected person because we've seen him be captured. Right. I mean, I kind of kind of knew the whole time that it was going to be him. So to me, I didn't feel like it was a huge twist. Um, but I will say that they did do enough to throw you off his scent. Absolutely. And I love the director immediately is like, let's turn you into a life story. Let's be partners. This horrible thing that he just did And without even worrying about, geez, maybe he's not the most honest person in the world. It's, oh, no, no, no. This is a story. We're going to tell it. And we're going to be rich and famous off of it. I mean, it is so on brand for, like, slimy Hollywood. But what I would have much rather loved to see is, I mean, I, I guess I like where Pete ends up. I mean, like, okay, sure, he gets the girl, fine. But I feel like because they never delve into him having a love of the movies or what that meant with his relationship to his father, I feel like his character is a little flat. I feel like he doesn't have a strong enough arc and that he's not developed enough. What would have tied that up for me is if he declined the promotion offer and said, you know what, I think I'm going to write my own movie because this would make a great story. And he wrote the movie 
about his town, about the history, about the place that he works. I mean, we don't need to see all of that play out, but it would have been really nice to see that as an inspiration. And now he's got a connection. He loves the movies. He's on his path. Yes. And I liked the fact that they call out, let's have a real Hollywood ending and the mom gets proposed to. You know, I really thought that that was something I would bump on and it was going to be too cheesy. But the way they tee it up with, yeah, let's let's give this a four star rating. Um, I actually think it was a good way to land the plane. I just wish that George did have the ring on him the whole time and it wasn't given. I mean, I like I, I'm never going to be mad about Mickey Rooney getting another moment, but because they bothered to have that conversation. And I, I love the conversation in the car with the metaphor of the plants and what happens when you repot one and uproot it and da 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 I kind of feel like it would have been a little bit nicer if George had it on him the entire time. And it was always his intent to do this. Yeah. Um, are you ready to start talking about our cast? Let's. All right. I. You know what? I'm going to go with Mickey Rooney first because Mickey Rooney deserves top billing. He's Mickey Rooney. He's a legend. Not else needs to be said about Mickey Rooney. No notes. Just incredible. Uh, Just amazing. And I love the character. I mean, I would have loved it regardless because it's Mickey Rooney. But I really just do love movie Mason. Yeah. It's a well-written character. The fact that they got him to play it just puts it over the top. Taylor Handley plays Pete. Um, I really like Pete. I find him so incredibly likable. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that he's a hard worker. Uh, you know, in spite of the fact that we don't know why he loves the movie theater so much, I just appreciate that someone at his age is such a hard worker and wants to put the best foot forward and is always thinking two and three steps ahead. But they do such a good job of also writing him as being your typical 17-year-old teenage boy who still has a girl on the back of his mind. So, like, there's there's the payoff of I can impress the girl. There's also the payoff of I can advance myself in this job that I really love. I thought that he was all around a fairly well-written character. I would agree with that. Um... You know, I I like him. Um, I I think you know it was well acted, just not as well written as it could have been. We needed something more. You know, his entire personality is this job, which is fine. You know, I mean that that it's certainly relatable. Like to me, I was working when I was seventeen. I was an assistant manager by the time I was nineteen. So like, I fully understand the juggle of school and work and trying to have a life. But we needed something else besides he just enjoys this job. Because if you're giving that much of your time to something, it has to be more than just working and being responsible. You just needed to connect the dots as to why he loves the movies a little bit more. Or even for, you know, even if he didn't love the movies the way that his siblings did, it could have just been that he's like a history buff and he loves what the theater meant to the town. Yeah. It I've... could have been that. It could have been so easy. We just needed something else, a little bit more personality trait. Yeah. Caitlin Walks plays Karen Riley. Um, I like Karen. I, I, I totally buy that she is going to 
uh, ditch her brother at a movie and go hang out with her friends. And I love, I love her appreciation for cinema. And how, in spite of the fact that they have a seemingly rocky relationship, just because they're younger brother, older sister, that they still have that tie where they love the films together. I think that um, the age here was really important to their relationship because I don't know... If they had made her any older, like, say she's, like, 14, 15, 16, then I feel like it would have played too much into the older sister is annoyed by everything that her younger brother does trope, there was still enough there to get them to work together, which I really liked. Um, and really, I I thought she carried this film. I thought that she was great. Other than those couple of um, clunky line deliveries in the beginning, because she just played everything so angry and it was just all that same energy. And she was at a 10, the entire first scene that she's in. I feel like, you know, that could have just been dialed back a little bit more. But the rest of it, I feel, is a lot more nuanced. Yeah. Um, and Especially I'm not... in that scene where, you know, she's got those couple of cutaways where uh, Mickey Rooney is delivering those, um, the, the No Place Like Home lines. She looks so emotional. And there's so much weight that she's carrying there. Uh, that performance in that scene was like a beyond her years kind of performance. Yeah. I do want to call something out. I, I had a mistake earlier that I said that Lisa was the girl that um, Pete was crushing on. It was Caitlin. Caitlin. Yes. Right. But, but yeah. I, okay. But I've watched the film twice and both times I walked out of there thinking that it was Lisa. Like, and I don't know. Lisa's I a friend. Right. But I, I feel like there's a poorly written or poorly delivered line somewhere where that gets lost. Honestly, that's why I didn't correct you because I thought it was Caitlin and I thought there was something that I had missed. Yeah, twice watching through, I thought that it was that that her name was Lisa, which I mean, kind of goes to show that she's really just a plot device, right? At the end yeah, of the day. Yeah, you know why though? Because th there's another scene where where the bully is trying to get in and one of the staff members, I think he says, Caitlin and Lisa are going to the premiere. You don't have a ticket. And the bully's like, I'll stand. And the kid's like, that's a fire hazard. And that's the most character development we yeah. get from the guy that's working there that was introduced in the beginning. Right. All right, let's move on. Jacob Smith plays Brian Riley. I like Brian. He's a cute kid. I think he's a pretty good, uh, you know, scheming little brother looking for, you know, what can I get out of this? I'm going to help you get away with sneaking into the movie that mom doesn't want you to see. The only thing about him that I wish they would have cleaned up was, like, yes, he sees the through line in trying to figure out the next prank, but almost every hunch he had was wrong. And and when he, like, really gets aggressive with Merle, it almost makes him dislikable with the accusations. I can see that, but I actually really love Brian. I love that especially because you're talking about quoting movies. He's not the all-knowing quip machine, and I feel like we could have gotten into that territory very quickly. Um, so I like that he's got like just enough knowledge to be helpful. I like that even though you know he's going to disobey Pete and wants to help, he doesn't do it in a way that's annoying. Like, yes, he just shows up at Pete's side, even though he was asked to remain in the theater. 
that's like the worst thing that he does. It's not like anything that he that he's doing circumvents what Pete is trying to do. It's not like he made a prank worse by trying to help. Um, so I like the way that he was written, that he was being um, helpful and not another antagonist. Rich Hutchman plays Sean McGibbon. I like this character. Uh, I thought that they did a good job throwing us off the track. I think uh, his motivation makes a ton of sense. Um I just wish that we would have had a little clarity on what was supernatural and what wasn't, but otherwise I thought that this was a good character and it was well-performed. I would agree with that, but I wish they leaned into that in the performance a little bit more. I don't know if it's how it was written, how it was directed. I would have liked to see a little bit more diva come out of him and a little bit more entitlement as to why he wants to be or thinks he should be the GM. Um, like, I'm not saying go full Bucky like we just talked about in Zombies, but I feel like a little bit more Bucky would have been great here. Colin Fox plays Wolfgang Niedermeyer. Um, yeah, I mean, he, he looks like somebody that would be a movie chain mogul. He looks like somebody that would own a bunch of movie theaters, and I think he plays the part well. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. There's not much else there. Um, and I, Are we ready for final thoughts? Uh, hold on one more cast member that I do want to shout out that I recognized. Uh, let me look up his name here. He played Tucker on, are you afraid of the dark? Which is what led me to believe that this was filmed in Canada, because I think that are you afraid of the dark was a Canadian series. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was Nickelodeon, but I think it was all shot in Canada. Uh, Daniel DeSanto. Um, but I recognized him immediately because this had to have been around the same time that they were filming. Because uh, he looks the same age. It's not like he grew up and I was like, oh, is that? Like, no. That I was like, that's Tucker. And then the director, meaning not the director of Phantom of the Multiplex, the director in the film, Tyler Jessman, is played by Carlo Rota, um, who I recognize from Boondock Saints. Um, but he's been... He's had bit parts in so many series. Um, I think he was also... In an Olsen twins show. Um, but yeah, he's he was another one that I recognized. So they did, you know, they they did get a pretty big cast for this. Yeah. Um, all right, so are we ready for final thoughts? Um, I I think so. I mean, if you don't mind, I'll go first because go. I'm gonna keep this short and sweet because I said it before. Um this this was the movie that I needed right now. Um I wish I had seen it earlier. I wish I had seen it while Mickey Rooney was still alive. Um, and it would have been nice to like have this memory being that, you know, I just love him so much from growing up on Pete's dragon. So I wish that this was another one that I had grown up on. Um, but especially um, that it came out in 2000. I mean, that was in, um, high school for me that was when I was really starting to get into tv and film so like to have this to watch about you know they're they're not only working at a movie theater but pulling back the curtain and especially with movie mason's set I just would have been eating this up as a child and I mean really even though I'm not in the target demographic anymore that didn't stop me from enjoying it any less like i i just really love this and i i think i found my decom sweet spot of 2000s movies that feel like the 90s 
I love this movie. Um, for some of its warts and for some of the things that were a bit underdeveloped or didn't necessarily pay off, this is a great movie. Uh, the cast is fun. The set is great. The plot is a lot of fun. Um, and I think that it's, for me, it's a top 10 decom. It yeah. could, it could maybe slide into the top five, but it, it, it would be close. I, I, in reality, it's probably sitting at like number six for me. If we take musicals out of it, so meaning I can't count Teen Beach, this is probably my top, and then Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire. Well, yeah, if you take the musicals out, but I, I wouldn't necessarily do that. I, I'm just talking decom in general. Well, if musicals are in, then Teen Beach is first, then this. Yeah, this is a really, really great film. This is one that I think is going to be a revisit. I think that you can watch it any time of the year. I don't think it necessarily has to be a Halloween movie. I think that you can tune into this any time that you want, and I think that you'll you'll get an awful lot out of it. I kind of like that we were surprised by that because we did select this thinking it was going to be like spooky Halloween fun. Um, but I like that it has that... Um, evergreen feel. Yeah, it's a hidden gem. We're interested in knowing what you have to say about the Phantom of the Megaplex. You can let us know on X, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets, or you can email me directly, monorealradio at gmail.com, and you're going to want to because our news this week looks delicious. Jollywood Nights food drops. Like, food drop, mic drops. Like, Disney is, is coming out swinging here. This is some of the best food offering that I've seen come out of Disney in a very long time. And what's amazing is we literally can't go through all of it because it's too much. There's got to be 30 or 40 things on this list. It's, it's unbelievable how much food they are dropping for this event. What's really interesting is I'm wondering if they're trying to play this as like another type of festival just because there's so much. I don't think that they're going to have festival booths the way that Epcot does. But I feel like this is kind of a test run to see how popular the event is, how popular these food items are, and then maybe it becomes a festival. Because the other thing, you know, we're going to break a couple of these down. I mean, there's a lot of really delicious looking cocktails here. I'm wondering if they're also trying to spin this in a way that this is the adult event, whereas Very Merry is the family event. Yeah, I kind of suspect that. I wouldn't that. hate it. No, I'd be I'd be here for it. Um the amazing thing is how many locations are getting involved and are going to be serving food. Um 
I, I'm honestly concerned with how we are going to budget our time. There's and no get way. Enough Muppets and enough snacks. Yeah, there's no way we're going to get to everything that we want. It's, it's just too much. But the ABC Commissary is going to have items. Baseline Tap House. Dockside Diner. Epic Eats. The Fairfax Fair. Gertie. The Market. Gertie Cookies. I love that they did that. Pizza Rizzo. Uh, Twilight uh, Soiree at the Tip Top Club. The Trolley Car Cafe. And uh, Gingerbread Bites is going to be an outdoor vending location. They're going to have... Um, a, a number of bar locations that are going to be set up. We, you know, we see the rolling carts out there. Um, Jazzy Holidays at the Brown Derby. Uh, Joffrey's is going to have a handful of things. Like, it's in, it's insane how much they've rolled out for this event. No, and everything just looks delicious. I mean, like I said, the cocktails look amazing. But the food items here, um, they have... Uh, the, the meatball, which looks incredible. They have sliders that it looks like they're topped with bacon jam. I'm, I have, okay, so just for our listeners' sake, I have the Disney Parks Instagram pulled up, so I'm looking at the <laughs> yummy food. Sean actually has the article with the menu. So like we said, we're not going to go through everything just because there's so, so much here. Um, and I'm salivating. But um, the, these hot cocoa mugs, it looks like a cupcake but it's it's made of cocoa. I, like, they really pulled out all the stops for this. And they have a Sandy Claus hot cocoa. It's not alcoholic, um, but it's, it's got the cherry. No, it says right on here. Um, I'm sure that they will have some sort of Bailey's option, but they're yeah. doing it with a cherry whipped cream. Like, I could get so down with that. Like, there is just so much here. Uh donuts and what here's the amazing thing they don't just have it's not just my thing with um not so scary this year was a lot of it was spicy most of it was mm -hmm. spicy so that that does not match my flavor palette i don't like spicy i can't do spicy so i was spiced out of most things this year um there is such a well-rounded mix that there is something for everybody. They're sweet, they're savory, they're spicy, there's decadent, there's alcoholic, non-alcoholic. Like, they, they just, they knocked it out of the park with this event. And the good news is that at the time of this recording, there are still tickets available, so it's not too late. Yes. And if you haven't gotten tickets yet, or you haven't booked a trip, talk to Jackie. Now's the time. Because if you're not excited, I don't know what else we can show you that's going to excite you. Uh, but we're interested in knowing what you have to say about the food offerings. Or if you are going to Jollywood Nights, you can let us know your feelings on X, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio. Or email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. Don't forget to follow us on that social media. We are also on threads and TikTok at Monoreal Radio. Uh, please like, subscribe, and rate us on your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show. It's online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.